Our Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for it, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that he would give us insight, and Lord, that your word would do your work, correcting us, rebuking us where we need to be rebuked, reproving us where we need to be reproved, Lord, so that we may be trained and equipped for righteousness, for your name's sake, for the sake of your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine that you are walking down the street one day, and off to the side, there's this car lot, And lo and behold, you see the car of your dreams, and it's at a price that you cannot even believe. And in fact, not only is this the car, not only is this your dream car, but it's the the color that you would have picked if you would have had your choice in the matter. And there it is. It's sitting right there at the front of the lot at a price that you know that you can afford. And so you go inside, and what do you do? You ask, you know, can I take this for a spin? Can I take this for a test drive? And the response that they give you is, we'd love to let you take this for a test drive, but the carburetor's bad, the axle's cracked, the alternator needs to be replaced. In fact, the whole engine needs to be replaced. And suddenly you realize that that price on the car was, was way too much. If they were to give this to you, you would be ripped off. It would cost that much to fix it. So suddenly you realize this car isn't such a good deal after all. It looks beautiful on the outside, but once you get beyond the surface, once you look underneath, once you get to the meat of it, it is garbage. It's gorgeous outside, it's garbage inside. All you're looking at really is what would potentially be an oversized lawn ornament, right? You can put the key in the ignition, you can press the accelerator, you can press down on the brakes, but it won't do you any good. That car is not going to do what it's supposed to do. And this is the type of life, this is the type of faith that Jesus saw in a lot of religious people, and it's a lifestyle that he commonly warned us against having ourselves. For our sermon today, we're going to be continuing in our series on the parables, which we do every first Sunday of the month. Today, we're going to be looking at a tale of two sons out of Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. And what we're going to see in our lesson today is that every Christian must be on guard against hypocrisy. Every Christian must be practicing and growing in obedience to the will of God. Our passage comes at a time, just to set the context, it comes at a time in Jesus' ministry that wasn't long before the crucifixion. He's into the home stretch here. The 21st chapter starts out with Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem where the people are laying branches down on the, on the road and they're, they're, they're hailing him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they are, they're having a party, they're celebrating all these people who are celebrating would be the same people who would be calling for his death at the end of the week. We get to verse uh, verse 12, and Jesus goes into the temple, and he drives out 
those who are there for the sake of commerce only, just for the sake of commerce, whether they're buying stuff or whether they're selling stuff, Jesus goes in and he drives them all out. In verses 13 to 16, we learn that the blind and the lame were coming to Jesus in the temple and he was healing them. And as these, as these children were seeing him do this, they were celebrating, they were praising him, they were worshiping him, which drew the scorn of the chief priests and scribes. At that point, they had had enough. And so Jesus rebukes them for their hard-heartedness, and he exalts the children above the chief priests and scribes and elders, which, of course, just further infuriated them. And so the next day, Jesus returns to the temple. And as he walks up to the temple on this second day, he's met with a question by the chief priests and the elders of the temple in Jerusalem. They demanded to know, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus, he's under no obligation to to even acknowledge them. He has no reason to even look their direction. In fact, if the chief priests and elders had been honest with the facts, and if they'd been honest with what they were seeing happen the day before, they would have known the answer to this question. So Jesus, there's no real reason that he should answer this question because the answer is obvious. But Jesus responds to this demand by saying that he will tell them the answer, but only if they will first answer a question that he gives them. So he asks them, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Heaven or from man? Two horns of that bull, and they're going to sit on one of them. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky question because it put the chief priests and the elders in kind of a squeeze. They're they're in a little bit of a predicament here because as they they huddle together and they discuss, uh, they, they know what the right answer is. It's from heaven. But they also realize that if they give the right answer, if they say that it's from heaven, it will reveal their own hard-heartedness and their own unbelief. But if they answer incorrectly, if they say that it's from man, they're just going to turn the people all against them because the people all recognize that John the Baptist is a prophet. So what are they going to do? Two, two horns on that bull, they try to find a third. They say, we don't know. We don't know. Of course they knew, right? They did know. So they straight up lied to Jesus, which is never, ever, ever a good move, right? So Jesus, in turn, refuses to answer their question. And that sets the stage and brings us to the parable of two sons. And the reason Jesus tells this parable is to judge, is to condemn the religious leaders for refusing to respond to John the Baptist's preaching and baptism of repentance. Now, in last month's lesson, what we saw is that almost all of the parables are to conceal, not reveal truth. That's their purpose. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. It wasn't to make things crystal clear for everybody, contrary to some thought. It was to hide the truth from those who had already rejected the truth. But while that's normally the purpose of Jesus' parables, there are exceptions. Sometimes that's not the purpose of a parable. This parable is an exception. 
Because as we're going to see, Jesus will actually interpret the parable in plain language for those who have rejected the truth. So let's look at this parable together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. We read, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Okay, they, they asked him about his authority. And Jesus says to them, verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So what we see here is that there are really three main characters of this parable. There's a father, and there are two sons. The father represents God in this parable, and then there are the two sons. The father goes to the first son and instructs him to go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son responds by saying, no. He initially refuses to do the will of the father. He refuses. He's in rebellion. He refuses to do what the father tells him to do. Jesus interprets this very clearly for us as he continues. He he tells us the first son represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The first son represents anyone and everyone who might have been viewed by these religious leaders and by society at large as being the lowest of low people in society. Those who were not only completely undeserving of God's grace, since we all recognize that we're all undeserving of God's grace, but they were also viewed by the religious leaders and by society as being the least likely to be loved by God, the least likely to be welcomed by God, the least likely to be forgiven by God. You see, when the tax collectors first heard that there was this this guy out there and he's, he's eating honey and locusts, and he's, he's just kind of a wild man. He's like a beast. And they hear that he's out there in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance and practicing a baptism of repentance. And when they heard about it, they refused to go. They refused to repent. They didn't want to be baptized by John. The tax collectors at the time, their job was basically to steal and extort money from people on behalf of the government. They were mean, they were greedy, they were tough. You didn't want to mess with them, and they had the government behind them. And if you had asked the average tax collector, hey man, why don't you come out and and get baptized with me today? Why don't you come out and repent and turn from your sin and be baptized with me today? They would have said to you, I don't have time for that. You've got to be kidding. I've got money to collect, and if I don't work, if I don't get out there and earn a living, I'm going to be broke. I'm not going to have what I want the most. I don't have time for God. I have no desire 
to repent. So thanks, but no thanks. When the prostitutes would have first heard that there was this prophet named John who was preaching and practicing a baptism of repentance, they also refused to go. They also refused to repent and to be baptized. They said to themselves, I'm not the religious type. And I've done so many bad things in my life. If you had asked them to go with you, they would have said, don't you know what I've done? God can't forgive me. God can't love me. God can't welcome me. So thanks, but no thanks. And yet, when the tax collectors would lay in bed and think about it, they'd realize the conscience. Their conscience would be nagging them. It it would be keeping a tax collector awake at night. And so as he laid in bed trying to sleep, he'd be laying there thinking to himself, I know that my work is so unethical. I know that I'm stealing. I don't even know how I live with myself anymore. This isn't exactly what I signed up for. I'm not the person that I used to be. And what good is it to be rich and miserable in life? What does it matter if I gain all of the treasure, all of the riches, all of the money in the world, if I'm going to spend forever in hell someday? The prostitute would go about her business, but like the tax collector, her conscience wouldn't allow her to let go of the possibility that God was willing to forgive her. She'd lay awake at night wondering, is it true? Is it true? My my sin and my shame are destroying me. They're eating me from the inside out. Is there really a chance that God would actually forgive me? Is there really a chance that he is able to wash my sin and shame away? And so eventually, many tax collectors and many prostitutes who had initially said no to God repented. They changed their mind. They changed their mind. They put their faith in God's promise to forgive them, to to accept them, to wash them new. And they repented, and they went out, and they listened to John, and they repented and got baptized. These people who were seen as the most unlikely, the most unworthy to enter the kingdom of God would indeed enter. So the first son in the parable represents these types of people the lowest of the low elements in society who repent. The second son represents, as Jesus tells us here, the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders. They had initially said yes to God, but it was just on the surface. It was all just empty promises. They were like beautiful cars with broken down engines. They're like whitewashed tombs with death inside. Their profession of faith was not real. Because while they had claimed to be doing the work of the Father, while they had claimed that they cared about what the will of God was, the truth was that they were hard-hearted people who remained steadfastly rebellious toward God. Refusing to submit to the will of God refusing to surrender to him, refusing to submit to him, refusing to repent. 
when the chief priests and elders of Jerusalem heard about this prophet named John out there preaching and performing a baptism of repentance, what did they do? They went, but not to participate. They went out there to watch, to see who was repenting, but not to repent themselves. They refused to repent. They refused to be baptized. They felt that to to repent, to confess their sin, that would be beneath them. And they had no need to confess. They had no need to repent. After all, we can't have the chief priests of the temple in Jerusalem confessing that they are sinners in need of repentance, in need of a Savior. Or so they thought. But the truth is, that was exactly what they should have done. That was exactly what they should have done, especially since they were the ones who claimed to be doing the work of God, especially since they were the ones who should have cared the most about the will of God. But they refused to repent. They refused to obey the will of God. And that is what made them hypocrites. That's what made them hypocrites. Beautiful on the outside, death inside. As Jesus told this parable, we see that they were actually, these chief priests and, and elders, they are so blind to their own sin. They are so blind for their need to their need for repentance and forgiveness that they didn't even initially see that they were the brother. They were the second brother. How do we know that they didn't see it? Well, Jesus points it out to them. They had refused to answer. If you remember, Jesus had asked them, you know, this question about John the Baptist and they had refused to answer it. Why? Because it would make them look bad. It would make them look foolish. But they didn't hesitate at all to identify which of the two brothers was in sin. Because they didn't even realize that was them. They were totally blind to their own need to repent, to confess, to truly believe, not just on a surface level, but inside. This parable sort of points us back to Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, you shall know a tree by its fruit, right? Does that kind of ring a bell? Jesus said every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Makes sense, right? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them, wolves, false teachers, false professions, so then you will know them by their fruits. And then the part that should scare the daylights out of us, if we take self-examination seriously, and we should, Jesus continues by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The one who does what? Obeys the will of the Father. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Friends, we must 
we must regularly examine our lives, measuring our lives, measuring our thoughts, our actions, our heart, everything about us, measuring our lives against the standards for Christian living that are set forth, laid out in God's word. And where we find a shortcoming, and you will find shortcomings every single time you look, if you look close enough, and when we find those shortcomings, when we find sin in our lives, what do we do with it? We turn from it. We repent. We confess. We turn from it. One of the strongest pieces of evidence and assurance that a person has actually been legitimately born again is that they are growing in their concern for obedience to the will of God. They take it seriously. And in a couple years, they'll take it more seriously than they do today. And in a few years, they'll take it even more seriously than they did two years from today. They're growing in their concern for obedience to the will of God. Which means that they are repenting and confessing sin regularly. Because if there's one thing that the parable of the two sons and the lesson that Jesus gives us of the good tree and the bad tree, if there's one thing that these two things teach us, it's this. A child of God cannot live in a state of perpetual, unyielding unrepentance. A child of God cannot live in a state of perpetual and unyielding unrepentance. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, quote, There's no such thing as a carnal Christian who can receive Christ and be regenerate and have no repentance. That's impossible. That's as unbiblical as it gets. End quote. The hard and honest truth is that the true Christian will grow in personal and practical righteousness. And yet, there is no growth in the practice of righteousness if there's no repentance, if there's no confession, if there's no turning away from sin. That's how we grow. That's how sin loses its hold on us. We turn from it by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In fact, the first imperative command of Jesus is what? Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent. Repent and believe because repentance is always, always, always a fruit of salvation. There are no exceptions. And many would accuse the church of being full of hypocrites, full of people just like these chief priests and elders. And I suppose that Maybe in one sense that's a little bit true in the sense that we affirm an ideal. We affirm the necessity or, or, or the ideal of righteousness, of, of not sinning, of, of being sinless. So we, we affirm this ideal that we don't exactly live up to. I get that. However, in the truest sense of the idea of hypocrisy, it is not true at all that the church is full of hypocrites, since a hypocrite, by definition, refuses to repent, refuses to acknowledge their need for a Savior. They deny their need to confess sin, while all authentic Christians do confess. They do repent. They confess their sinfulness. Again, by definition, What does John say about somebody who says they have no sin? He says the truth is not in them. 
Someone who, has not conf- who does not confess, who does not repent, who never has, is not a Christian. Now we should understand that because this parable deals with the command of the Father to do something, namely to do the, the work that's out in the vineyard, this parable reaches beyond just repentance and initial justification, initial salvation, and it stretches into sanctification. It's about the need for repentance. It's about the need for for faith unto salvation, but it's also dealing with our attitudes afterward, after we're saved, our attitude toward God's commandments. And so with that in mind, there are at least three very important lessons, three very important principles that we can gather from this parable. First of all, we have to understand that a profession of faith in Jesus does not save anyone. A profession of faith in Jesus does not save anyone. Actions speak louder than words. That's what the old saying is. Actions speak louder than words. Deeds reveal our doctrine. In fact, deeds reveal our doctrine in a way that words do not. Our actions say something about what we believe. They say a lot about what we believe. Our lips can lie very easily. A profession of faith by itself doesn't save anyone. However, that's not to say... Just to clarify, that's not to say that a profession of faith is necessarily a bad thing. Someone might read this parable and they might see, okay, these, these chief, uh, these, these chief uh, priests and, and elders, they made a false profession. You know, they, they promised to do something that they didn't live up to. So maybe the point of this is that we shouldn't make any profession. That is not true. That's not right either. Jesus isn't against someone professing faith in him. He's not against that at all. He loves people professing faith in him. What Jesus hates, what Jesus hates is a false profession. What Jesus hates is an empty promise. What Jesus hates is lip service. He turns away the one who says, Lord, Lord, and yet does not submit to the will of the Father and has no concern within them for obedience unto God. He turns that person away. It's good for us to profess faith. It is good to profess true faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So you might read that, and you might think, well, wait a minute. There seems to be kind of an illusion of tension here between what Paul says here and this parable, where confession is revealed as being, by itself, just kind of worthless. But the resolution is found by closely examining what Paul says here. It's not just the profession of faith. It's also believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So there's, there are two aspects here. There are two aspects. There is the profession, but where does the profession come from? Because Jesus said, whatever fills your heart, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. 
And so that's the type of profession that Paul's talking about, where your heart is filled with joy and belief and faith and hope, and so out it comes. You profess Christ openly. That's opposed to what Jesus said to the religious leaders on another occasion when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people have watched preachers on TV or they've gone to a church or they've gone to an evangelistic crusade where they were encouraged to repeat a prayer of salvation or they were encouraged to come forward if they want to receive Christ, or they were encouraged to sign a card, or maybe they were even encouraged to get baptized so that they can be saved. And yet, even after doing so for the sake of being saved, they continued to slosh around in their sin like pigs in the mud. They're just loving it. They're they're sinning self-indulgently. They never turn from it. They never change their ways. In fact, their love for their sin grows more and more and more strong. They're indulging themselves and they're loving it without regret. They're like kids who are out in a swimming pool and there's a thunderstorm and there's lightning all around them and they're being told, get out of the pool and come inside. And they say, okay, mom. Five minutes later, they're still out there. Lightning is still crashing around them. Get inside. Okay, Mom, we're coming. What do you say to a kid like that? You say, don't just say you're going to get out. You need to actually get out. No one is saved by a profession of faith or a commitment to follow Jesus in and of itself. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not in a prayer, not in something that we do. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that we're saved by, as Martin Luther said, is never alone. It's made evident by fruit, by good works, good works like repentance. Here's the crucial distinction. It's very important that our faith not be in something that we have done whether it's say a prayer or get baptized or go to church regularly or whatever. It's very important that our faith be in Jesus Christ rather than in something that we have done. So what is the object of your faith? What is the hope that you cling to? The fact that you said a prayer or the fact that Jesus shed his blood to redeem you? That's the question we need to ask. I I one time received an email in which I was uh, reprimanded for criticizing the sinner's prayer. And the person who wrote this email said, now wait a minute, you're up there preaching against the sinner's prayer. I was saved by the sinner's prayer. True story. I said, no, you weren't. You were not saved by saying the sinner's prayer. You may have been saved and thus said this prayer, but you would be saved by the faith that caused you to say the prayer, not by the prayer itself. If you're saved, it's by faith. It's faith in Christ, not faith in something that you've done. Faith in Christ. A profession of faith 
by itself doesn't save anyone. And that's not to say that people who say the sinner's prayer don't get saved. Of course they can. But it's a matter of what's going on in their hearts, not what's coming from their lips. That's the point. A second lesson that we can gather from this parable is that there is work to be done in the vineyard. And of course, this work includes things like repentance. It's good works. Doing God's work while we're here on earth. Growing in the fruit of the Spirit. But it goes beyond just that. See, we live in an age in which there's an abundance of charities. There are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of charities out there. And Christians are pretty good at getting behind and and supporting good causes. They really are. Christians are good about that. For example, according to the World Nations, uh, United Nations World Food Program, there are just short of 800 million people in the world who are malnourished and or starving to death. 800 million people. That's, that's a lot of hungry people. I think we can all agree that's a lot of hungry people. That's more people than, that's twice as many people as we have in America. So is it wrong to support charities that provide food for these 800 million people? Of course not. Of course not. That, there's, there's nothing wrong with supporting that. But while that is a great cause, it's, it's a noble cause, it's a worthy cause, there is a spiritual famine in our world that is far, far greater than the physical famine. As roughly three billion, almost four times as many, roughly three billion people in the world have never even heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. They don't know that they are sinners who need to be saved. They're on the road to eternal destruction, and nobody is going to them, telling them, pleading with them to turn back and take the narrow path. Nobody is going to tell them about Jesus. Nobody is trying to reach them. Three billion people. And that's hard for us to imagine in this culture that there would be that many people that have have never even heard of Jesus because in in our culture, in our corner of the world, man, there are churches like every block. I think within a one-mile radius of, of our church here, we've got like 14 churches. But such is not the case everywhere. That is not how it is when you go to China or Indonesia. There are three billion people who have never heard of Jesus, and there are three billion more people who have heard of Jesus, but who have rejected him. Have we given up hope on them? Have we given up hope that they would come to Jesus? Of course not. And so for that reason, there is work. There is a lot of work to be done in the vineyard. There is so much work to be done. There is no time for Christians to be just sitting on the sidelines, nursing injuries or watching 
TV all day and just living for the sake of entertainment. Every Christian must be practicing and growing in obedience to the will of God. The mission field abroad is absolutely important, but God calls you and me to do more than just write a check to missionaries. I'm not saying it's bad to write a check to missionaries. We need missionaries abroad. We need to be writing checks to missionaries abroad. But we need to go beyond that. Because God doesn't just call us to support missionaries. He calls us to be missionaries. As Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And the thing is, we're not really trained to see ourselves that way. So what do we do? We repent. We change that because the mission field starts as soon as you take one step out this door. That's where the mission field starts. You are a missionary. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, And he said the second greatest commandment is like that, to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And here's the thing. These two great commandments should compel us to participate in the Great Commission. The Great Commandments compel us to participate in the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. There's the obedience part. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The great commandments compel us to participate in the great commission as missionaries ourselves here in our corner of the world. There is an abundance of work to be done in the vineyard. And that leads us to the third lesson that we can glean from this parable, and that is that the need in the vineyard is immediate. The need in the vineyard is immediate. The father doesn't say, son, next month I'm going to need you out in the vineyard. He doesn't say, next week, son, go work in the vineyard. He doesn't say, tomorrow, son, can you work in the vineyard? No, he says, go and work in the vineyard today. Today, that's what he says. Don't just vow to do it with lip service, like the second son. God doesn't just want your lip service. He wants your life service. Now be honest with yourself here. Are you more like the first son or the second son when it comes to doing the work of God? When it comes to participating in the Great Commission, are you more like the first son or the second son? Because it's really, really easy. I'd say it's the flesh nature that, that remains with us until glory. It's really easy to procrastinate when it comes to obeying God. Why is that? It's the the war of the flesh. 
You know, it's easy to say, yes, I want to go to heaven. Yes, yes, I'll follow Jesus. But when we count the cost, and when we see the work that he calls us to, it's so easy to say, I'm busy. Maybe tomorrow. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? I think it's because our hearts and our minds are in the process of being sanctified. God is pulling us away from the power of sin, but it's still got a hold of part of us. The flesh still causes us to stumble. And every single one of us, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter if you became a Christian 50 years ago or five minutes ago, every single one of us still has so, so much growing to do. We have yet to fully understand the full weight of sin, the full offense of sin, the full reality of hell. And God hasn't fully revealed those things to us yet. He reveals these things gradually and incrementally because if he showed us the full picture of how awful our sin is all at one time, it would absolutely crush us. That would be our last breath. That would be the end of us. It's that serious. And so he teaches us, he shows us glimpses, and we learn and we grow gradually, incrementally. Now, of course, it would have been better if the first son in the parable would have just immediately agreed to do the work of the father. If he wouldn't have said, no, I'm not going to go. If he would have just immediately said, whatever you ask, father, I'm going to go do it. But Jesus does tell us that his repentance is nevertheless rewarded. It would have been better if he would have just said yes, but his repentance is still good. Many people live with a maybe tomorrow attitude, but hear me very clearly now. If God is speaking to you today and he's calling you to do his work today, and he is if you're a child of God, then don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until you're not busy. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Just like those kids in the pool, is it guaranteed that the lightning's not going to hit them in the next five seconds? Nope. So get out now. Don't wait until tomorrow. It's sin that causes us to live with this this maybe tomorrow attitude toward God, but know this, it will be more difficult to be obedient to God tomorrow than it is today. It'll be more difficult to be obedient to God tomorrow than it is today because that's how sin works. Sin doesn't get easier to turn away from. It becomes more difficult to get away from. That's how sin works. For the person who hasn't repented and placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, this parable offers the greatest hope in the world that God honors repentance. God honors repentance. He's seen the rebellion in your life, but he will honor repentance. He will accept repentance. So repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. He has given you, until today, he's given you time to change your mind. And his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, 
God offers forgiveness to all who repent and believe. And that is such a great hope for anyone and everyone. If you've never done that and you know that God is speaking to your heart right now, don't wait. Don't wait, because tomorrow's not guaranteed. For those who have repented and believed in Christ already and you're sure that God is speaking to your heart about serving Him, working in the vineyard on behalf of Christ today, then start today. Every Christian must be practicing and growing in obedience to the will of God. Have you ever asked yourself, why would God save me? Of all people, why would God save me? I, I, I've asked myself that, time, that question a million times. And I think it's a question that, that a lot of Christians ask themselves at one time or another, but the answer is pretty simple. Why would God save me? Somehow for his glory. We're saved for his glory. And how do we glorify him? Through obedience. By doing the work that he calls us to do. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's your purpose. There's our purpose. To believe and to act in accordance with our beliefs. Remember this, deeds without doctrine is aimless. But doctrine without deeds is lifeless hypocrisy. Deeds without doctrine is aimless. Doctrine without deeds is lifeless hypocrisy. So let us not be a people who say, yes, Lord, but live with a maybe tomorrow attitude, never getting around to actually doing the work that God has called us to do. Rather, let us be a people Let us be a people who are devoted to both profession and practice of our faith as we strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has equipped us with absolutely everything that we need to do his work in the vineyard. And by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, he's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight so that we may serve him in the vineyard today. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you that we are an unrighteous people on our own and that without your son we would have no hope of being reconciled to you. Without your son shedding his blood on Calvary for us we would be children of wrath under your condemnation. But we thank you that in your great love You sent your son to bear the sins of all who would place saving faith in him. Father, we ask 
for strength and wisdom to do the work that you have called us to. Teach us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow your Son, regardless of the cost, for the sake of his glory. That he may be made known, not only in our doctrine, but also in our deeds. Teach us, Father. Teach us to glorify. Teach us to live. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.